Sound Lounge. Welcome back to the Sound Lounge podcast. This episode, we're bringing you more audio from the Evening with Bob event series. This time, Bob's guest is industry heavyweight Matt Biffer, famous for his recent work with Netflix on series like Sex Education, Jury Hadji, and The End of the Fucking World. He now works mostly in film and TV, but cut his creative teeth sourcing music for commercials, such as Jonathan Glazer's Guinness Swim Black campaign at music production company Air Adele, where he's worked since starting as a receptionist in 1996. Matt was quickly recognised as something of a musical anorak and has since achieved huge success and critical acclaim, with his own career highlight being the wizarding rock group he put together for Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, consisting of Pulp's Jarvis Cocker and Johnny Greenwood and Philip Selway from Radiohead. Bob and Matt talk about the complications of letting the show speak to you, following your intuition and allowing for serendipity, all while sticking to the budget and keeping producers, directors, editors, broadcasters and, most importantly, the audience, challenged but satisfied. Bob started by asking Matt about his impressive roster of recent work. Music, supervision, royalty. Matt Biffer, everybody. And, uh, I mean, Ruth just did a quick roll call there of recent production work that you've done or, or the the series that you've worked on just just really quickly so because i i know a lot of people in the room will have seen some of these series matt uh, just give us a rundown of the things that you've worked on recently so last year i had a good year last year i did uh the end of the fucking world season two i did a thing called jiri haji for the bbc which was extraordinary actually and i did sex education I, I do sort of bits and bobs in between those, but sort of sex education seems to be an annual thing now for me, and then I sort of fit in lots of other stuff around around that. Sometimes you don't know how things are going to go. At the end of the fucking world, we thought that we were going to get a good review in The Guardian and 12 people were going to see it, and the 12 people that did see it were going to love it. And that's all we thought about it, and it sort of... And it did really well. And nobody expected that. And Netflix didn't expect that. And I think they were slightly concerned that their algorithm was a bit shonky. Yes. That they didn't see it coming, if you know what I mean. Sex education, you think something like that will stand an outside chance of doing pretty well. But it's gone a little bit mental at the moment. Mm. Uh, it just came out. Season two just came out this Friday. And it seems to, well, I mean, season one, 40 million people saw it in the first month. So we're hoping that we've done at least that, if not a little bit more. That's incredible numbers, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's 190 uh, countries. It's quite something. Wow. Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Netflix is just massive, isn't it? Now? Yeah. And it, it's, it's sort of replaced the traditional broadcasters really they don't completely replace them because they still exist but yeah. you know it, it, it sort of towers over everything now mm. doesn't it amazon netflix they're so powerful yeah and and it's changed i mean five years ago all my work was film mm. and i did i think i did fresh meat for channel four that was the only tv i did now 90 percent of my work is is a tv work specifically the subscription services 
Netflix. Uh, I've just started doing something for Apple. Um, and I'm doing one film, you know. So, and the what I found is is that the quality of scripts that are coming out of the TV world is hugely superior to what to what's being done in in sort of feature films at the moment. I think, yeah, you know. So it's difficult to find a good film to work on these days, whereas there's lots of really good telly being made. And most of the reviews, I'm sure if, you, if you've read any of the reviews of any of these series, one of the reasons people are saying for their phenomenal success <laughs> is the soundtracks. You know, I mean, it's true, isn't it? The, yeah. the, the soundtracks have been particularly noticeable for, for their, the wide range of, of different styles of music yeah. that you've weaved into those uh, soundtracks. Yes. So... How have you managed to do that, Matt? What, what what was your canvas? What did it look like? The answer is I don't know um, at first. I, I don't. I don't. Every job that I start, I always start every job from the position of I've got no idea what to do with it. And that's true, actually. Like, I really struggle. And then it sort of, it, it sort of reveals itself, if you know what I mean. But... What you don't do is you don't try and, I think, fulfill something that you think is going to, that you think is going to sort of sell well or deliberately be popular or something like that. I don't, that's not what I think about. Actually, bless them, I got uh, earlier on, uh, sort of last year, I got an email from from, uh, a chap at a major record company sort of saying, look, I know you're starting season two of the end of the fucking world and we'd love for you to consider like working with one of our artists and they'll write a bespoke song for it and I sort of quite respectfully had to sort of say that that that's really kind but we've spent quite a lot of time working out the identity of the thing and the audience I think there would be a real backlash because what you can't have is you can't be looking on Instagram and then sort of see Season two of the end of the fucking world featuring a new and exclusive track from, yes. you know, Sam Fender or something like that, you know, because the audience would just go, well, you've completely sold out. Yes. So respectfully, we have to sort of turn all that all that down. But you just have to tell the story is is, is all you're doing. And, you, and you're just trying to work out how you do that. And sometimes, you know, you take a bit of a, a risk. Like sex education is quite... That came quite easily. You didn't have to go on a massive mental journey to know that it was going to look really John Hughesy, a little bit like the end of the fucking world in the sense that it's it looks American, but it's set in England. You don't know what time period it is. A lot of people still get very confused about about that. Yes. So it sort of felt like okay, well, uh, you know, we can definitely sort of dip into the eighties with, with 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 sex education. The end of the fucking world started completely differently. That was started off from a position of being much more probably early 90s American indie, sort of early Beck and, and, and stuff like that. And there is some of that still, but it, it sort of became by accident because we didn't have very much money for yeah. uh, as well. And that's the other thing. Yes. Is Actually, that, that's quite often a great advantage, not yes. having a lot of money, I, I think. Necessity is the mother of invention, yes, you know, indeed. as somebody much cleverer than myself said once. 
so you know we didn't have a lot of money and 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 i was just sort of looking through i i asked to get uh you know a lot of the record companies and the publishers to send me stuff and there was a lot of do what coming through and that just sort of seemed to the more we kind of thought about it the more that seemed to work with this kind of quite you know sort of indistinct look you know you don't you, you don't know where you are you don't know what time period it is and all that kind of stuff but i think i alluded to this in 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 that sort of video thing i did the other day it's a teenage show so it's a show for teenagers it's a show about teenagers and no sane person in their right mind would go to a meeting and say, I'll tell you what we want to do with this is we'll just put loads of obscure music from the fifties in that nobody's ever heard. Yes. And, and nobody would go, that's brilliant. Go and do it. You know, <laughs> except for Clark and well films who make the end of the fucking world. Yeah. Because it just sort of, you know, and actually what, and then weirdly it just sort of, you know, when, when it came out, people loved it. Well, you know, two things about this, because uh, obviously, I've, you know, one of the things that I've done through 50 years now is program build. <laughs> and I seem to have uh, managed to chisel this little ridge on the side of the cliff where, where I stand, yeah. going in with, with my own ideas, having put this show together that I'm now going to put out on air. Yeah. Uh, plus, I, I'm, I make documentaries and... Uh, you know, in particular, there was a, uh, one I'm so proud of called The Day John Met Paul, mm -hmm. which came about from being in Liverpool, uh, looking out over the, on, on, onto the field where the fate was held, where they met, where John was playing in this band, mm. The Quarrymen. And the one thing that all this work over all this time has taught me is that you've got to let a programme dictate to you what it wants to be 100%. and, it, and it, it sounds so strange to say that because you know you're the one putting the show together and you would think right you know you've got your hand on the tiller and you you are going to sh shape it completely yeah. but the more you try and do that the more resistant a program is to that idea you've got to let it's like writing you've got to let it breathe mm. haven't you Matt? i mean this has always been my my experience and the more you do let it breathe the more, I don't know, it'll tell you, it'll tell you where, where it wants you to go. Yeah. And then if you just follow that instinct, somehow then that works. Yeah. Dylan. So a, a question for you, Matt, around this. So when you get a brief in, other than saying that obviously you don't know quite where it's going to go mm -hmm. until it does, what on a brief do you see where you go, okay, this is going to make my life a lot easier? Is it, say, the budget or the year it's set in? or the kind of demographic it's going to. Are there some things when you get a new briefing for a new show, say, where you go, okay, I've got a rough idea of how I'm going to pan this out, even when it's early? I mean, the money the money sort of does dictate, uh, does dictate where you can go. Stuff that is set in a particular time period is just dead easy because, you know, you, you know I mean, I've just done this, uh, Christine Keeler. Well, that's 61 to mm. sort of 63 at its, you know, you know, so you're, you're sort of, although actually they did, the, the director slightly buggered up and used something from 1967, which don't tell anybody. Does, does, it, does right. that drive anybody else mad? Because I know, I know I'm a bit of a stickler about these things, yeah. but it does drive me nuts. It drives me mad. When something's set in 1963 and you hear something from 1968, which wouldn't have been released yet for another five years. Yeah, it was rock Am, am, rock. I, am I on my own with this or doesn't it matter really? 
you know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it drives me mad. And also, I, I mean, the other thing I like doing is, is, is uh, like in Christine Keeler, there was a, an on-screen band and, you know, you, you have to make very sure that people are using the right guitar and the right amp. And so you do a lot of, I ended up sort of talking to a guy in, uh, in Cheltenham about uh, what guitars were widely available in 1962 or whatever. Yeah. Because I know that some idiot is going to go on Twitter and say, he's using a Hofner Galaxy and they that didn't come me. out until 64. You know, uh, yeah, exactly. So, and the internet, you know, everybody's got an, an opinion now about, about something. So, you know, it's difficult enough when you get it right. You know, someone's always going to have a little dig. So, God forbid you get the wrong, you know, base. And do and you also find that, you know, saying that this, the, sh the sex education show is predominantly aimed at people in their teens. Yeah. That it's only that they haven't heard a particular song that they don't know how good it is. Yeah. Once they hear it, they then discover how good it is. Yeah. You know, I always think this particularly about do up and rock and roll, because the only reason that they wouldn't necessarily uh, think, uh, come on everybody by Eddie Cochran, let's say, is a great record, is because they haven't heard it yet. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Good, good music is good music. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether it's 50, 60, 70 years old. Yeah. And I have this issue a lot with, uh, with producers who sort of say, well, you know, we need new music. And I always say, well, new music is just stuff that you haven't heard yet. Mm. So, you know, you're quite right. If you haven't heard, if you haven't heard, like, uh, you know, uh, something by Freddie Neal or something like that, and then you hear it and it happens to be to, the, to a, a sort of a really emotional scene that gets you a bit prickly behind the eyes, you know, people are really open to that now. You know, and in fact, I think people, uh, I sort of credit Breaking Bad with this a bit, actually, as sort of being, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I know I, I know a fair bit about music, but yeah, I was shazamming everything on Breaking Bad because I was just like, what the bloody hell is that? Yes. You know, but, but what that sort of told me was that people are, well, you know, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because, you know, people are really open now to, to music that they haven't heard and from whatever period that is. It's interesting, isn't it, how many really, really successful series of the last sort of 15 or 20 years, let's mm. say, you know, have had music as absolutely central, not just as background, but yeah. as, as, as an aid to developing characters within a story. Yes. The story definitely, but then within that story, characters sometimes, that yeah. you get a particular tone of, of a particular song backing up the arrival of a particular kind of character. I mean, I'm thinking of The Sopranos, for example, yes. in that respect, that yeah. seemed to me a lot of it, it was I, which which came first, you know, it was with, were they etching the character or did the music in some way dictate where that character was going to go? I mean, some of it is just a happy accident, you know. I mean, sometimes, and I learned this actually when I first started off, and I first started off like, you know, got in the early 14th century when, uh, you know, sort of finding music for commercials. And I worked on cassette, you know. So I had I had a what was known as Umatic for all the young people here. There was this format called Umatic, which was like big video. And and you had your music on cassette. And I used a pencil to sort of rock and roll the cassette to sort of work out where I was going to start a song. And I would press play at the, at the same time. 
and sort of see if it accidentally worked. Yes. And then it wouldn't work, and then I'd sort of rock and roll it forward another sort of, you know, I mean, completely just making it up as I went along. And then I'd try it, and then I'd be like, that accidentally is amazing. Because what we didn't now, what we do is we have stuff in laptops and we edit everything yeah. and we make it fit brilliantly. But back then it was literally just a cassette, a pencil, and uh, happy accidents. And and that's and that's sort of how you did it, and that's how you learn to sort of make it fit. Just as a, 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 a side, a slight digression, but just only a slight digression. But when I first started, um, uh, when I started to know that this or, or being a DJ, being a broadcaster, was what mm. I really wanted to do, I had a Decca stereogram. It was an auto change stereogram, and I had a Grundig tape machine yeah. sitting by the side of it. So I got my microphone like this, and uh, here I'd be. I'd be introducing this next song, Runaway by Dal Shannon. Yeah. And, uh, while the record was dropping down the spindle and landing on the turntable, and then the arm automatic used to come across and touch the vinyl, and, and off it used to go. So the second that happened, I'd maybe talk over the front of it a little bit, and then when it came to the vocal, I'd put the microphone by the speaker yeah. of the record player. Yeah. And then I'd sit there during the whole of the, the, the record while it played, two and a half minutes or whatever it was. And when we got to the fade, I'd bring the mic back <laughs> and let the next record jump down and I'd make sure that it was the right one. And then this is Roy Orbison and this is Running Scared. <laughs> you know, and I, I, I'd, be, I'd be recording all of this onto the Grundig tape machine. Amazing. And, and that's how, how it all started. But, but I mean... I'm saying that because the, the you <laughs> the the equipment becomes your palette, doesn't it? Your brush yeah. and your canvas and everything mm. else, and whatever it is you're working with at that particular time. Yes, actually, there's a, you know because obviously then when I get to the BBC and we're still in the late sixties, early seventies, you're talking. Uh, on tape you're talking reel to reel mm. and those big old studios or whatever it used to be you yeah. know um but learning how that worked was in itself then well i mean let's face it you know monty python came off machinery like this yeah the radiophonic workshop and, yeah. and all, all these amazing little nooks and crannies within the bbc yeah there people doing exactly what you you were doing man yeah super analog and also uh, for the young people in the room as well what what is sort of incomprehensible to think of is that because back then i had i had the guinness book of hit singles that went up to 1987 and i had my brain and um and that and that was what i and that was what i used i used to write stuff down all the time but what happened is is that if you wanted so if you wanted willing by little feet for example you rang up your mate at Warner Records and they would bike it round. So you would so you would call them up at sort of 10 o'clock in the morning and then at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, a courier would come round with a cassette, you know. Yes. Whereas now, of course, it just comes in your inbox and, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all done for you, you know. And then I'd get my pencil out and, you know, away I'd, away I'd but go. But there's a particular magic about that, wasn't there? Don't you, don't you think? I mean, you know, very kind of Neanderthal in its way, but, yeah. but great, you know, and fun. And um, because, you know, it's, we're talking about the, the 60s and the late 60s, and I know that, you know, the, the 60s is kind of before your time but one of 
your formative records, if not the first record you really yeah. registered, was a record from the late sixties, and that was uh, Deborah Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> yeah, actually, it was Am I right. right about it that? was Ryder White Swan. It was Ryder White Swan. So. Because, because because that was also, by the way, Matt, mm. one of the very first records I ever played on Ray J1. Really? Because that came out just as I started on Ray J1. Oh, my so Lord. So we're talking about 50 years ago. Oh, oh my, my Lord. <laughs> you see, the thing is, is that, and, I, and I know I sound like an old fart, young people, but uh, the, 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 the pop stars back then, I think you've you got to remember that you, you, like Top of the Pops was really important and so when you're quite young and you watch Top of the Pops and then you see uh, someone like David Bowie uh, or Mark Boland, you know, and all these, you know, even Susie Quattro, um, you know, I just remember being really obsessed with with these how these crazy people looked you know i think actually when i was three i had a red uh, a, a red plastic guitar and a leather jacket that i never took off i used to have to go to bed wearing this leather jacket and the red guitar and sort of stomp around to to top of the pops that kind of just sort of stuck with me i think I, there was something about those the way that those people looked and sounded and i didn't realize that t-rex was so rooted in you know sort of quite old rock and roll yeah. you know you don't know that in fact mark mark and i were really good friends in in the late 60s and there were very few people that well the other person was out and john that had a similarly <laughs> encyclopedic knowledge of old music and particularly rock and roll yeah. and i can still close my eyes now and think of the image of mark had a and his wife june they had a a flat in Little Venice, uh, just by the canal, mm -hmm. uh, in Maida Vale, with the old sash windows and everything. And yeah. uh, Mark and I used to have our own sort of little record hops around at his place, where I'd, I'd bring loads of my old singles around, and we'd, we'd, we'd sit on the floor and uh, just play records one after the other. And yeah. have you heard this? And oh yeah, and have you heard that? And uh, I mean, I did the Jeremy Vine. Jeremy Vine has got a, mm -hmm. uh, a morning show on Channel Five at the moment, and I, I did the show on. Friday, and it didn't happen that this was one of the topics, but they, in the briefing beforehand, they said, we're likely to do a piece. And they're saying to me, you know, don't know how you feel about this, Bob, but we're likely to be doing a piece about men wearing makeup. Right. You know, because there, there's now some, some of the big stores and boots, I think, have got a line of men's makeup now. Yeah, guy liner. Guy liner, <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, what, what, what do you think about this? And I said, well, I, I used to hang out with David Bowie and Mark Boland when they were, you know, wearing eyeshadow in 1971, you yeah. know, so, so anyway. <laughs> but, you know, you were saying there about having people deliver uh, tracks around to you, they'd mm. bike them over or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So, okay, actually, just before we get to that, so... So you started with T-Rex and Tyrannosaurus Rex and Ryder White Swan. Yeah. And you were there at the front of that burst of incredible records that Mark put out. Yeah. So they would have inspired you. Yeah. But then how do you begin to break into the industry later? What what happened with you? How, how did that happen? So I, I got into it completely by accident. All I knew was that I wanted to work in the music industry somehow. I was at that time working uh, for my uncle on a landfill site, 
driving a dumper truck and I, I realised I had nothing to add to that industry, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm afraid. Uh, but I, so, I, yeah, I, I wasn't happy, but I knew I wanted to... I, I, I saw an ad in The Guardian uh, media section for receptionists needed for busy music production company. So it had music in it and I was like, great. So I sort of, I spent three days on the phone trying to get the interview. I got the interview and one of the, one of the things they asked me was, well, where do you see yourself in five years time? And I said, look, I honestly don't know, but I'll, I'll keep my head down and hopefully there'll be something that I'll be, I'll be good at. Now, having sort of accidentally, because I'm totally unemployable and the only information that my brain really retains is musical information that I accidentally you know I accidentally learned about it so that so uh this guy Peter Wagood at where I work now he realized that I knew a lot about music and he put me to work finding music for commercials hence the cassette and the pencil and everything like that and that's how I learned my, my one of the first commercials I did was a Guinness commercial that had um Prez Prado Mambo number no. five on it that, and that 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 was a very different process but what i did learn was and quite quickly was just how to put music to picture and i learned very quickly that there's lots of different opinions and it's terribly subjective and actually what you're not doing is is putting everything that you like onto stuff so you know i was i was i was quite lucky that i was just allowed to sort of feel my way through that but i had i didn't even know there was music there was a, such a thing as music supervision i accidentally became one at quite a sort of opportune time is because this, I, is this because you were there and people would say oh matt what, what's your opinion about this knowing that you had a great knowledge of music um yeah yeah a, a, a so little bit a sort and of then organic process yeah and and then the company that I work for, that uh, one day this film came in that nobody else wanted to do, and they were like, "Well, just give it to him." So I so I did this film, and I was just sort of shown how to clear a song. I was told, "This is what you do," and uh, and I was sort of sent on my on my way. So what did they tell you when they said? shown what to do what, what so they just said basically you're clearing for all media now known or hereafter devised right and you're clearing for the world and you're clearing in perpetuity right right those 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 three things right and and you worked on you know you you, you sent faxes and and that was how you did it and so i was i would fortunately this film nobody ever saw so i was so i made some quite howling mistakes and managed to rectify them quite quickly and then never made that mistake again. Yes. And Which then, word? No, I'm fascinated by that because right. <laughs> <laughs> things that I have buggered up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I've done things like I cleared the Sex Pistols and I only cleared them for Britain. No, oh, okay. no, 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 I didn't. I cleared, I cleared the Sex Pistols. The Sex Pistols are, uh, I think, for the Warners, Warners for the USA and Canada, yeah, and Parlophone for the rest of the world, or EMI as it was back then. Yes, and I only cleared for the UK and the, the rest of the world, and then I realised I had to clear America. Yes, I spent three weeks trying to talk to all the receptionists at Warners in America to get them to put me through to the right person, so I could sort, so I could sort this. You know, bugger up, and it was a really bad bugger up because yes. I, you know, as far as the producer was concerned, that was the fee, 
And if I was going to have to cut, I realized then you can't go back and then say, actually, it's going to be another 20 grand more. So I had to really do my best to try and rectify that. And then, were like you, I say, you successful. Did, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> with, with like literally days to spare. Yeah. Before, before it gets mixed. Yeah. And, yeah. and have you ever had an idea for, I, I, I know we're, we're going to get on to kind of the filter around all of this in a second, mm. but here's, here's the scene or here's the picture. Here's the piece of music. You put the two together being absolutely convinced they're going to work. And then in the wider context, they just don't. All the time. Mm. So you read the, the script and then and you sort of imagine it and then and then you sort of think, right, okay, that and I've done it so many times. There was a thing for Fresh Meat years ago. I rang up I rang up the 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 editor and I said, right, when you get to that scene where JP burns all his belongings, put Liz Fraser's version of um at last I'm free on. Job done. Okay. <laughs> And he said, right, fine, I'll, okay. And then three weeks later, he said, listen, I, I've just laid that song up and it's really bad. And I was like, fuck off. So I was like, right, okay, send it along and I'll have a look. And I had a look and it was dreadful, you know. And I, there, there was just something that just didn't play when you actually saw it worked picture. Yes. And, and, and just trying to work out what that is is, is, is a really arbitrary thing. You it, it, you really just have to throw lots of stuff at something until it sticks, mm. and sometimes you sometimes it will take months. It can take like months, and you just have to walk away and leave it alone, and then come back, and then it kind of you, what we were saying. It kind of reveals itself to you, but you can overthink it. And and how many voices are you listening to during this process? Because you know this this is one thing that really does occur to me about music supervision, and I'm sure that that I always thought, well, not knowing anything about music supervision yeah. prior to meeting Ruth and getting involved with Sound Lounge, well, it's not that I knew nothing about it. But the one thing I did think was that if you're commissioning a music supervisor, then you're bringing in that particular expertise mm -hmm. to work on that particular moment, whatever that is. Yeah. So then you, because you're bringing in this expertise and the knowledge and everything else, yeah. you're going to hand over the responsibility for that moment to them. And I was basing this on the way things work, say, in television or yeah. in radio, which are my two main fields, Yeah. in that when I'm doing radio everybody has got their specific role mm. and when i'm program building that's what i'm doing yeah so i wouldn't expect say the sound engineer or or, or the, the producer necessarily they, they may make a suggestion but the bottom line is that final decision drops down to me yeah so when i came into music supervision i thought to myself that'll be the role this is what will happen you know, they'll, they, they'll ask me to to pick a song yeah. and I'll go, I know what's exactly right for that. Yeah. It's problems by the Everly Brothers or, 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 or you know, Wonderwall by Oasis. Yeah. Job done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, of course, it couldn't be more different from that, could no. it? No, no, you see, so, so you're, you're working with the director, then you're working with the producer. The producer has to be financially happy. The director has to be creatively happy. Uh, the broadcaster... 
so that could be Netflix. Netflix have an opinion. You know, if you're working on a Netflix show, they have an opinion, but sometimes they'll say, we'd like to see something a little bit more like this, but if it has to be this song, we'll stick with it. And then the editor, of course, and actually I was talking uh, to Ruth about this the other day with, with Sex Education. I've realised actually that that each of us has quite an important role in terms of there's there's what I bring to it, there's what Ben Taylor, uh, who's the principal director, brings to it, and there's two editors, Steve Aykroyd and David Webb. What I've realised is so important about Webb and Aykroyd is that Webb likes weird, obscure stuff that you know that takes me six months to clear. And Aykroyd is a populist. So Aykroyd will put stuff in that I that me and my sort of snobby music supervision, you know, sort of anorak person type thing would never go near. Uh, but actually, that is very important. And that is part of the charm of the show. So in season so in season two, in episode one. There's a there's this new kid called Raheem who is a very attractive man, and Aykroyd put "Do You Think I'm Sexy" by Rod Stewart on, right? So the music snob in me is like, oh god, Aykroyd's up to his tricks again, you yes. know? Because there there is a cost Even in saying that. that yeah, was my reaction. I know too. exactly. <laughs> and there's and there's a there is a cost implication to that era, Rod. And then I'm a faces person yeah. with rod i i stop with rod after the after the faces so the snob in me is just like this is awful ben taylor was like this is sort of awful and then as we sort of worked through the episode as we were sort of changing stuff and and so we realized actually that if we can that we can kind of keep that song because we'll sort of craft everything around it and then it won't, be, and then all of a sudden it worked. Yeah. And I sort of realized that you kind of have to have all those voices to make something successful. You have to have someone who isn't afraid to put some Al Green in. I wouldn't put Al Green in something because, you know, it's like with Paddington. Um, when Paddington goes down the, the tube, I had a Parliament song. We, we had cleared it, we'd put a Parliament get up for the downstroke right. on that was the song because he was strutting you know down the tube and everything like that and i remember very clearly one saturday night i was watching uh don't hold this against me i was watching x factor with the kids sneering you know and my phone went and it was alex the producer saying can we clear james brown uh, i i feel good for for the tube scene and and of course and again the the, the music supervision snob in me was like oh do we really need to have James, you know, I got you, I feel good again in I, anything? I go with that one. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and, 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 but then what I realised was, was that, so for example, my children and their friends, the only reason why they know James Brown is Kuda Paddington. So I kind of forget that actually this takes us back to, you know, music, new music being stuff that you just haven't heard. You know, just because I've heard Bloody James Brown a billion times doesn't mean that actually the rest of the world won't want to hear that yeah. song. So, you know, and it's important just to go and go sometimes, you know, what do I know? Yes. Well, I, I remember a sort of breakthrough conversation with uh, uh, with 
Oh, sorry, go oh, on. Takes me back to something you said earlier, uh, some time ago, about uh, not having much money. Mm. And then the next sentence was, so I phoned some producers, uh, et cetera, et cetera, in the business. Mm -hmm. uh, could you define not much money? Yeah, yeah, I can, I can tell you exactly. Um, not much money means like a thousand pounds for the publishing and a thousand pounds for the master recording. So that, that's about as little as you can clear stuff for. And in actual fact, so that was for season one. And then for season two of The End of the Fucking World, I couldn't even clear, there was nothing I could clear for a thousand pounds aside because the, the market conditions have changed in no small part because of Netflix. Yes. And what I'm forever trying to persuade, what I'm telling everybody now when I'm trying to clear a song is I'm saying, you know, like the per episode budget. So like the crown is made for $13 million an episode. That's how much they have to make one episode of the crown. Stranger things, they have $9 million. The end of the fucking world, we have 750,000 pounds for, for an episode. Okay. And 20,000 pounds for music per episode. So, but a lot of people, particularly in America, will go, it's a Netflix thing, so therefore there is unlimited money. And I constantly have to tell people, look, I know this is a Netflix thing, but, you know, like the money on this is coming from Channel 4. Or, you know, and sometimes it is a very tough sell. To give you another example, like, so for the end of the fucking world, like, we, you know, we cleared Oh Daddy by Fleetwood Mac, and I cleared that for £7,500 a side, which is pretty good for Fleetwood Mac, you know. And that's about, that's at the top end. Sex education, we have a bit more. So, like, do you think I'm sexy? We cleared for 40 grand, so 20 grand aside. Uh, but Rod Stewart names, you know, you, you, can't, you can't negotiate with It's Rod a lot Stewart, of investment really. too, isn't it, in yeah. one song? Yeah. And, and do, are you doing the negotiation yeah. on all of this, Matt? Yes. I mean, how, how easy <laughs> do you find that then? You know, because you're mixing creative with yeah. business, really, aren't yeah. you? And the, the two often don't match. You know, it's difficult if you're a creative to be hard-nosed on the business side. You're trying well. to satisfy two different masters. Mm. You're mm. trying to, you know, because you're a music lover and you want to try and get the best deal you can for the artist and the writers, mm. particularly in these times, you know, because it's tough out there for, mm. for everybody. Um but then also you're given your budget and you have to you have to sort of so you have to you know and it is a completely arbitrary process i literally think of a number based on how much money i've got to spend and what the sort of sorry to do this but the status of the artist is you know so and and you kind of have to work out what you can get away with and like any negotiation i offer something they say that's ridiculous they come back with another number and we meet in the middle. Yes. You know, uh, we sometimes pay a little bit more than we want to. Sometimes, you know, if we don't have a lot of time, there's just not enough time to negotiate. So we just have to go with, you know, but other times we'll go back and say, look, I'm heinously over budget on this. Can we stick closer to like, you know, whatever the number was? 
and nine times out of ten people will take a view so with something like sex education most people will want to be involved i remember seeing uh, a couple of years ago baby driver yeah a uh, fantastic soundtrack and you know there, there are definitely times aren't there where the music that's included on a soundtrack grows in status for being included on that soundtrack yeah because you can just tell that a really interesting mind has applied itself uh, to you know to use that song to express that scene yeah and everything is enhanced by by that by that creative process if you're doing I, it you right know, I was, yeah I was, I was just thinking about about the process for you matt and and how you arrive eventually at well you've explained it a little bit obviously with pannington and stuff but mm. you again you 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 you're given a scene let's say and um i say to you right just find something that's perfect here what what yeah you we know. can go into specifics on this go on, go on. okay so i've got some clips which i can show you for example there's a scene in in season one of the end of the fucking world where where Alyssa is walking into a pub with her father and we had to come up with a song for that now the director thought that the focus of the scene was the father okay i felt that the focus of the scene was Alyssa because it's the Alyssa finds out about three minutes after this that her father has another child and the father is actually a complete arsehole and as he leaves, he runs over a dog and kills it and basically everything go from that moment on, the scales kind of fall from her eyes and she sort of sees that, that you know, for years she's kind of worshipped him because he's been absent and she's had an idea about him and then she sees in one moment it's all taken away from her and he's just a tool you know and so i felt that that was the focus of this so there, there were there were discussions but i can show you now um it's the it's the second one i think isn't it yeah so if you think so the the the, the focus on this is the father okay when you see this So you can see the focus is on him, the energy is on is on him. And like I say, the director felt very strongly that that, that was what it was about. And then me and uh, a couple of the guys, uh, the, the, the producers felt that that wasn't the way to go. And we tried a lot of different stuff. Um, the thing that we found with the end of the fucking world as well was that we could be quite on the nose. And sometimes you don't do that with, with music. Sometimes you, you, you sort of, you, you do something that's quite the opposite with this. We just, well, you'll see, uh, you know, it, it, it's very, very on the nose, but it, it, it really works. And ultimately people just felt that it was more moving. So we can. Oh, daddy. You know you make me cry How can you love me 
so weird and you wanted something for so long and you've been so frightened it'll be shit and then it's not shit at all it's amazing short and sweet and I wish we'd have been able to use it a bit longer but the scene didn't sort of merit it really yeah I mean I don't know I mean it's sort of like I mean obviously we never would have would have been able to clear David Bowie but some people might sort of think ah actually the David Bowie is amazing and it should have been like that and some people might think that how it ended up was is best, you know. I mean, there's there's always these sort of discussions, you know. So are you spending time literally matching yeah. these things like that to yeah. see which one to so, so you you'll have a list of, of tracks yeah. that grows or 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 gets smaller or what whatever, and and then you begin to reach around, put that track in, see how that matches. Is it Sort of that kind of process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like literally, okay, we'll try this. And sometimes it is the right song for the wrong scene. And sometimes it's the right song, but you're trying it in the wrong place. So, like, sometimes you have to start... This goes back to the pencil and the cassette, you know. Like, sometimes, you know, actually, if you started that maybe on the third verse rather than the first, then it, it might be even more powerful. You have to kind of try all that you know but it is it is really arbitrary i wish i could tell you that you can just sort of look at something and go boom yeah, yeah. that it never works like that i don't think i've ever done anything where i've got it right first first time yeah yeah so you know i mean just one more thing on, on that uh, idea of you know people don't know that this is a great piece of music uh, simply because they haven't heard it yet mm. my two sons my younger two sons and my my youngest daughter who's 22 yeah. i was overhearing a conversation that they were having between each other this is probably about six or seven years ago and the 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 name phil collins came up uh, i couldn't think of a sort of less likely idea that, that the three of them would be really into phil collins yeah so why were they really into phil collins of course the lion king yeah and it's like Randy Newman, Toy Story. Yeah. You know, so this whole thing, because uh, I think that this is a big part of the discussion generally when one's talking about matching music to, to, to film or pictures or whatever. These ideas that, oh, it's got to be for the kids and uh, it's got to appeal to a young... It, they only don't no you know they they don't know this like they like this record yet simply because they haven't heard it yet yeah. and once you begin to match that record particularly i mean randy newman and toy story randy newman's a legend yeah. as far as my kids are concerned you yeah. know and I, that that's when it works at its best isn't yeah. it when you create that kind of synergy in that way yeah and 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 it's only actually it's it's only now with sort of you know uh things like twitter and there's a website called tune find and you know we've got spotify and everything like that that you can really sort of you you can sort of see incremental increases in popularity so you can sort of see there's you know uh youtube views spike massively from a certain date and then spotify spikes we're seeing this on Sex education the, on on this season of of sex education. This this website called TuneFind has a has a yeah, 
sort of basically there's the trending songs. So basically as a, as a program comes out, they see all this traffic to Shazam and all this kind of stuff. And it automatically starts showing what the top 10 most popular songs are. So in TuneFind, hilariously, all of the 10 top 10 songs at the moment are from Sex Education. And we're essentially knocking each other off the top 10. <laughs> yeah. As people go through it, we're starting to see like, 17 by Sharon Von Etten, which is in episode seven, is now sort of, you know, racing up the charts. Yeah. How does that make you feel, Matt? Because, I mean, yeah, it must be a fantastic feeling. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it really, yeah. I mean, it really, I, I, I get a real... Buzz off it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Particularly, like, with something like Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, like, having a Nick Cave song in there, I sort of really enjoy the fact that I don't think anybody would expect Nick Cave to be in a Harry Potter film, you know. Um, and I remember when when we were shooting this, not to sound like a sort of name dropper, but we we're like, uh, little Daniel Radcliffe sort of ran out to me and sort of said, Oh, you're making Harry Potter cool. And I was like, Oh, thanks. Yeah. You know? Uh, you know. But, you know, I mean, it was quite nerve wracking because, I mean, I can show you in a minute the, the sort of the, the, the thing from the script, because at that stage you're literally reading a script. And then you're imagining it in your in your mind as to how they're going to play it. But you're assuming that they're going to do it good, you know, that they're going to do it well on the day. There's always this thing that actually they might do it really badly. And then you've got no plan B, you know, like there's nowhere for you to go. And I remember watching them do it for the first time and I looked around and the makeup girls were crying. And then I was like, okay, I think I think this is going to be all right, you know. Yeah. But we can show. Yeah. Well, let's have um, a look. I can I can show you this the the bit from the script. If we got, so if you if you have a look here, it's literally hillside dusk, blah 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 blah. Hermione says it's a Muggle station. There's music playing, and then it just goes down to there. Um. I mean, I don't know if you can... I'll, I'll leave it up there for you to read. But that's all I had to go on. And they just sort of said... They just sort of said, you know, we, it has to be it has to be classic, but it can't be too... Well, I sort of said it can't be too recognisable because the thing about Harry Potter is, is that we take the world to you and we can't take you out of that. So if you put Otis Redding... Let's say you put Try a Little Tenderness on there. We all know Try a Little Tenderness, and that takes us immediately out of, out of the film. If you have Oasis on there, it takes it out. Now, what's interesting is, is that it said there it's a muggle station, and what I, that didn't end up in the film. But what was interesting, I mean, that could have been anything, you know. So, like, you know, she might have been listening to Radio 2, for example, <laughs> Or, you know, it could have been Six Music or, you know, it could have been Capital and it could have been Bloody Take That, you know. Um, but again, you, you know, you, you, you can't have anything that people have too much of an association with. And then the final thing was, um, sorry, I'll come to you in a second. The, the final thing was, was that the director said, you know, there's this moment at the end. So, but it can't be too romantic, but there is this moment. So uh, you sort of walk away from a meeting like that and you sort of go, okay, this is quite, this is quite baffling. 
You were going to ask a question, sir. Hello. I feel that some of the music is telling me how I should feel. Yeah. Um, how do you tread that delicate balance between enhancing the emotional content of the story that's being told, allowing me as a viewer to make my choice about how I feel about it? Or are you... Uh, um, uh, because so often I watch TV and I, and I have to go out of the room because I think, please stop this music. Yeah, I do that. Uh, uh, because <laughs> I'll decide how I want to feel and I don't need you to tell me so strictly how I must feel. Mm. How do you tread that delicate balance when you're... Well, it is a really delicate balance. Story? And sometimes, sometimes there's so little dialogue... That, that you kind of have to, or, or that you, you, you inadvertently do that. But the thing with, with, with music is that you can sort of change, I mean, you know, you can change, you can make people look like best friends, you can make them look like brothers, you can make them look like enemies, you can make a scene seem very long, or you can really tighten it up with the, with, with the right song. The answer is, again, is that you just have to, is that you, is, yeah, I mean, it's a really I mean, good question. It's a really it? delicate thing. <laughs> yeah, that that again, there is no sort of one answer to. Sometimes it is appropriate, you know, like going back to the end of the fucking world, because there is like sometimes you get like an okay. There's three okays and a what, and that's the dialogue. And so there's voiceover to help with that. But sometimes we are we're. So sometimes my job on that show is to is is to help people is to explain their emotion or you know somebody gets stabbed in the throat and then we have something like Brenda Lee doing I'm sorry which is just hilarious and is intended to be hilarious to undercut to undercut the awfulness of it you know which is why in sex education you know a lot of people as well get confused about the look of it and it's very bright and it's very american but the subject matter in that show is sometimes quite gritty and actually if you had it very gray and very british and everything like that it would be too gritty and you need to sort of you know you have to lighten it up a little bit you know and so we can do that with bright shiny songs from the 80s you know it's yeah, I mean, it's very delicate. I think the also there is a sort of element of subjectivity that comes yeah. into this. You know, we we, we and I know we had mentioned this on on uh, one of the previous evenings, but uh, we were talking about the use of the Beach Boys song "Wouldn't It Be Nice" on uh, two different, completely different ad campaigns recently. Yeah. One was uh, I think it was Sky with with Lily James, yes. and the other was a war game thing call of duty yeah thank you dylan it's uh so but you know the imagery of the the of call of duty they used was very kind of clashing and violent and literally they, they were they were using the same song for two completely different campaigns at more or less the same time so ultimately you know it, it, there is an element of subjectivity about this i think you one can almost always tell when a lot of thought and creative care has gone into 
this particular moment in this particular scene or, or whatever it is. Yeah. I think you really can tell. I think what you're talking about are the crass moments where you're going, oh my God, they're using, do you think I'm sexy? <laughs> or, or, you know, or whatever it is. You yeah. Know? And, and and again, going back to, do you think I'm sexy? Like, I you you can see the reason why it's there. You yeah. know, like, did I agree with it? Not really. Was I wrong? Yes. Does anybody remember the Kenny Everett sketch? Yes. Of, 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 with the inflatable with bottom. With the inflatable bottom. Yeah. Oh, just genius. He was a genius. Yeah. And, and, and just while we're talking names, and, and then this is a digression, but I know that he was very important in terms of your kind of musical uh, history and, and appreciation. Can we just for a second mention Alexis Corner? Yeah. Um, because Alexis, I don't know who anybody in the who in this room knows the name Alexis Corner. Oh, good! Look at this, fantastic. <laughs> Alexis was a big mentor figure for me in the sixties and seventies, right. and he was a fantastic voiceover artist. Not yeah. to say in the in the seventies, but because he was one best known really for his involvement in the blues scene in London. Um, putting on gigs for visiting blues artists in in the web, John Lee Hooker and Sonny Terry and Browning McGee and people like this. And he was also the catalog uh, catalyst be, behind the um, formation of the Rolling Stones because yeah. he ran this incredible place called the Ealing Club. He had a, a night there on Wednesday nights uh, where he'd invite all these young kids in the early 1960s to just kind of turn up and jam. Mm. And then and these young kids included people like uh, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Eric Burden, Jack Bruce. And, yeah. and he, he was a, a mentor figure for a lot of us in those days. And of course, he was a very important figure too in your well, kind of musical education. Yeah, because, because I used to nick my parents' records and my dad had, had the Blues Incorporated album. My dad's record collection was very catholic it was the beatles the stones dylan elvis and some early blues of which there was alexis corner yeah. and sunny yeah. terry and brownie McGee and yeah. stuff like that yeah. my stepmother was mostly mid to late 60s southern californian rock so neil young buffalo springfield moby grape a little bit of led zepp who i know aren't some you know california and stuff like that and then my stepfather was worryingly into prog rock, but also had stuff like All Directions by the Temptations, which then, which has the 13-minute version of Papa Was a Rolling Stone, Stone and yeah. then I got into Sly and the Family Stone from that album. Yeah. So, so that, yeah, that, and then that's Parliament, as you said. Parliament, the Gramps, Meters, yeah, yeah, all yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. That all comes from from hearing All Directions by by Temptations. Yeah. You know, but then and then having listened to that Blues Incorporated album, then going back to like, you know, those Big Bill Brunsy and, you know, and all those, you know, and John Lee Hooker and Muddy Waters and all that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, which I always used to listen to, even in the 80s, there was people like Stevie Ray Vaughan and Robert Cray and there was this sort of, you know, newfangled blues that I didn't quite like as much as the really dirty stuff yeah you know, the willie well, dixon and stevie all that ray vaughan. well i mean stevie ray vaughan was was, was awesome but you know yeah. howling wolf yeah 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 i mean i really am because just one final sort of question along this 
route. But did you hear Tanarowen? Do you know Tanarowen? Mm, yeah. There's a, a wonderful uh, group from uh, the Southern Sahara um, called Tanarowen who um, they play effectively almost it's kind of American blues. It's American blues from the, the Southern Sahara. This young lad who's five or six nomadic um, walked into a, a, a village square one evening. It was just getting dark, and uh, this is right on, on the edge of the Sahara Desert. And they were showing a film, an old cowboy film, which they were projecting onto the white wall of one of the buildings overlooking the square. And he was absolutely transfixed by this scene that he was watching of uh, it was an old cowboy film as they say and there were a group of cowboys round a campfire and they were singing those wonderful old harmonies that the yeah. country and western used to be yeah. and somebody was playing an acoustic guitar yeah. and he was transfixed by the look of this and sound of this acoustic guitar yeah. because you know that that culture is not a guitar culture mm. so he'd never seen this uh, instrument before but he was determined to to find one so that he could play it and listen to the sound of it and he just couldn't find one so he eventually found a bicycle frame and he pulled across this bicycle frame some bits of wire mm. that he somehow managed to sort of get taught and and produce some kind of three or four note almost like a bass guitar thing yeah. and, and and around that grew this band yeah. and the band became Tanarowin, and um, you listen to them even now, and the the rhythms and the feel of their music. Because then, once he'd discovered, you know, he got his guitar and he'd, he'd discovered that, that this music exists. Right, mm. let's let's now begin to research and borrow and go go down this tunnel and see where it takes us super bluesy yeah 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 and then he discovered muddy waters and john lee hooker yeah. and that infused into the music of to narrow and it's a really soupy wonderful mix that they produce on their records and i first got to hear about them through robert plant right. because he played the festival in the desert some years ago and they were one of the bands that played yeah. i mean i'm saying all of this to recommend that if you've not heard them um, find them because yeah. they're brilliant and I've thought from almost the moment that I did hear them that if there's ever music that's set up to be part of some really amazing sort of expression of, of, of a scene in a film mm. Tanarowin would be that group you know yeah. to bring something completely different in, yeah. into the mix and yeah it, yeah, yeah you've sort of inspired me actually <laughs> <laughs> So, so okay. So we're talking about uh, the, the the process, Matt, of of uh, you coming up with this particular track. So that director has said to you, he's given you a brief. Here's what we're approximately looking for, yeah. and you're going away with all these thoughts running through your head. Mm. Where do you go then? What have you got? Have you got a studio at home? What's the em environment that you're beginning to play this out in? Um, my my head, my brain, my memory, my imagination, really. Like I say, when I'm looking at a script like that, I'm just sort of trying to work it out in my head. I'm always doing that. But we have the internet now, you know. And actually, sometimes you, 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 you sort of actually, you can really tell when people give stuff thought and when they don't. You can sometimes send briefs out to record companies. You can sort of say, right, I'm looking for something that is... 
you know, very sunshiny. And then you can sort of tell that somebody just put sunshine into their iTunes and you get sort of 10 songs with sunshine in the title. Your heart sort of sinks a little bit because it's sort of like, actually, I want, you know, something a bit more than that. I mean, a lot of times, sometimes it can drive you so mad you end up lying on the kitchen floor at four in the morning listening to six music, just hoping to hear anything, you know, or or you'll hear something on the radio and that will then send you off. You can sort of think about, you know, like you'll hear like uh, Os Mutantes or something like that and then that will send you off somewhere else and then you might end up at the OCs or... Or even hot chocolate, or you know, for yeah. some weird reason, there's no rhyme, or you know, you have to be open to just trying lots of lot, lots of stuff, and sort of, you know, like like Ben Taylor, who does sex education, is like, I like you best when you're off your meds, yeah. and but and by that, what he means is where he can sort of tell that I've really sort of gone that extra mile and just sort of, you know, so I f- I feel like I have a lot of freedom with with that to sort of really go to like Paul and Linda Thompson, Richard and Linda Thompson, for example, which is, you know, like, like say like a heart needs a home, Yes, you know, which um, I sort of secretly have been trying to get into something for ages, but I sort of, that was a very long rabbit hole that I went down of starting at, at, uh, I think John Martin, and then sort of went there and went there, and then then ended up with Richard Thompson, you know. So, uh, you know, by way of Metallica, or do you know what I mean? Yes. It's like it can take you into some quite, you know. And then you sort of get into this situation where it's sort of like I don't know if this is good anymore. I, I, it's sort of like, you know, like, am I insane? Yeah. Have I, you know. I was going to say that it it is, you know, driving yourself crazy, isn't it? It drives you absolutely mad and you just can't get it. Yeah. And then it My producer sometimes, Mark Hagen, will say to me, you know, because I'll I'll be on the phone with Mark and I'll be saying to him, you know, I've I've tried this with this and this with this. You know, I've I've, I've gone to the obvious first of all and then I've thought it's too obvious. Mm. And then I've started to drift around to look for something it's the second track I want to change now because these two, it's just too obvious. Of course, you'd follow it with, do, do, do you think I'm sexy? No, it can't be that. I've got to yeah. find something. And Mark began to say to me, you know, never look a gift horse. Don't look a gift horse, Bob. Yeah. It falls into your lap and it really works. Yeah. You can save yourself hours of work. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> by, yeah. By, by, by not looking a gift horse in the mouth, you know. Well, sometimes, sometimes you, sometimes obvious is good, actually. Yeah, and it that's, is. And you know, and so you can kind of actually look. So going back to that, that Harry Potter thing, "Oh Children" was the third song on the first CD that I sent to them. Uh, so on that CD was there was a bit of Otis Redding because I wanted to prove that you couldn't have Otis Redding. There was a bit of James Carr. There was Oasis. Uh, there was Oh Children, there was a song by Beck, uh, there, you know, and so, so I sent that off and I kind of, I had a feeling actually when I kind of came up with, when the idea popped into my feverish little brain that that was going to be the, the one. And then David Yates director called me up and said, I really like Oh Children. And then he said, the only thing I want to know from you is, is there anything better than that? And then your heart kind of sinks. And I sent another eight CDs, which got progressively shitter. 
And as, then were you sending uh, covering notes with them as yeah, well? Yeah, to yeah, say, yeah. This yeah. is Otis Redding. I'm only sending you this because I don't want you to use it, and here's why. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, basically, I, you know, you're just sort of saying, look, and actually sometimes, like, my, my boss used to get phone calls occasionally uh, from, from producers going like, this guy doesn't get it. Like, are you, are you sure he's any good? Because, like, he's just sent loads of really bad stuff. And my boss would go like, this is the process. In, in three months' time, you'll be absolutely loving it, you know, but, you know, this is, you've got to find out. It's as important to know the what doesn't work as what does work. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes that involves getting it a lot wrong, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes, so you have to sort of say, look, I'm, I'm putting this here because I think it's wrong. Can you confirm that my suspicions are correct, mm. you know? Uh, by the night, by the eighth or the ninth CD or whatever it was for that Harry Potter thing, I was really struggling. I mean, it was that last CD was bad, but um, you know, at that point, you're kind of only in competition with yourself. Yes. So uh, you know, and, and then and they have, were like, you know, right. And have you found anyway, Matt, that that now that you know your soundtracks have got such fantastic reviews and clearly you know have enhanced and added to so much you know you you've got a hit tv series anyway but the music has just been absolutely the cherry on the cake and you're responsible for that has has, has that given your opinion as it were more weight and clout and credibility no with, no <laughs> no but, but but you know i've had these hits we're, we're top 10 the whole of the top 10 and now is it not just number one or number five. I mean, five. you'd think so, wouldn't you? Yeah, the Beatles were the last band to do yeah, that. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> you know, you, you, yeah, you, you, you would think so, but uh, it's kind of not really fun that way. You know, like I say, you, you know, it's, it's more, at its best, it is a collaboration. And I really like it when I'm sort of pushed in, in other, you know, in different directions. I think that's good. And also I learn more. And, you know, you're never too old to, to, to learn a bit. You know, like I'm, I'm doing something at the moment which is really uh, like hip-hop, like sort of UK jazz hip-hop. And, you know, that's not my thing. That's not where I am. But, you know, I'm like I'm, I'm, I'm learning about yeah. it and, you know, and I'm sort of finding out loads of, loads of stuff. You know, it won't stick with me. It won't be the stuff that I'll be listening to in the car on the way home necessarily but you know by the time i finish it i'll i'll hopefully know loads about it and that that i, I like that you know i've got eleven and a half thousand tunes on uh <laughs> itunes right and i you know i have them come at me on shuffle yes so when i'm in the car randomly i don't know what's going to come up next from from grandmaster flash to kitty wells whatever it is you know yeah. and 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 that is a natural exploration of my part of my music collection yeah is to have randomly tracks come up at me yeah. like that and, and it, you know i find that really really constructive when it comes to reminding you about wow i haven't heard that for i'm going to put that in my show next week kind of yeah thing, you know yeah, yeah yeah absolutely there's a chap here that's Hi, I was just going to ask, um, with so many new uh, unsigned independent artists self-releasing music without the power of the majors and without the power of the big publishers like Eleven's earlier, yeah. um, how do you discover new music and have you got any examples of where you've taken a risk with an unsigned independent new piece of music in a, in a 
TV show or film that has really helped propel them to success? <sighs> That's a really good question for someone with a bad memory. So part of it is like tried and true, tested, you know, avenues, um, you know, managers, labels, all, the, all, all that kind of stuff. But I understand that that precludes, unfortunately, a lot of new artists. I get written to a lot. I am really behind. I'm generally like very behind on, on, on where I should be because I just can't keep up with all the music that I get that I get sent. And I do try to listen to it all. The stuff that pops up on YouTube before I'm, you know, watching something about guitars or something like that, somebody might pop up. Somebody will pop up on Instagram, some, you know, like Twitter. Somebody that I follow will like something on Twitter and then I will l listen to that. I'll see something on a blog or, or something. You know, there, there's so many different ways to sort of disseminate music now. Um, it, but you know it is difficult to kind of to to, to keep up. Uh, I mean, I used in Jury Hadji. There were there was a, a, quite a few unsigned people that 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 I used that were friends of people who were working on the on the show. You know, like that. I think the son of the editor. He's got a song in there. You know, and it can be that it can literally be right right place, right time where I'll get an email or something just when I happen to be looking at a scene and their thing will be perfect. Uh, I'm just trying to think of, I mean, I, it's, it's more sort of just like really obscure do-what bands that tend to do well with me at the moment. But, um, you know, that sort of go from 12,000 streams to 11 and a half million streams, bizarrely, and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, I mean, I'm always looking just Tell for us stuff. your favourite do-what track. I love do-what. I really do. I mean, it would probably be, uh, I mean, actually, uh, you, you kind of can't go far wrong with Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, yeah, can yeah. you? Really, I know that's like dead obvious, but... Um, why know, do fools fall in love? Yeah, why do fools fall in love, I think would be really, really good. Mm. You know, I think the thing about it is that also all that music was just explain. you know, pre-social media was just explaining to teenagers how they felt. Yeah. You know, yeah, which yeah. for the first time, probably. Go so. on, Dylan. So, kind of a more broad question, but both the because stream platforms, both for music and for films, TV series, have obviously changed both of those industries. Do you think the consumption of, uh, you know, just the audience, both on the music front and on, uh, you know, the the visual front, how much has that changed your role? Because obviously, you know, quite quite even something like the end of the fucking world someone will go and watch six episodes straight rather than even previously you wait for it week by week. Yeah. At the same time, whilst they're watching all those six episodes, say there's like 30, 40 artists that are played through those series, yeah. they can literally download all of their entire works whilst the series is on. Would you say that's improved your role and or made it more difficult or easier or has it made it worse? I mean, I think it makes it a bit more scary because you, you sort of realise that people are actually going to see stuff. You know, it, like, but, but I mean, like, when you're doing feature films, like, you've, that you've got no idea whether anything is going to be successful, you know. Um, and oftentimes, and I've done a lot of films that have gone absolutely nowhere. So it was, you know, in real terms, it was a complete waste of time doing any work on them because, you know, like, 
all that happened. Actually, I did one film called The Great Ghost Rescue for a producer who was one of the most awful humans. And it, it was sort of like a year out of my life that was one of the most unpleasant, unpleasant years of my life. And uh, it, it came out on DVD and there was one review on Amazon from a nine-year-old saying, this film is bad. <laughs> and I was like, it couldn't have happened to a nicer person, you know. So, but, so, but yeah, so I mean, it, you know, like it, you, you sort of think, okay, but people are going to see this. So that sort of sets up the pressure a little bit. You know, and, I, and, it, and, and things are so instantaneous now that it's sort of like if something is not that good, it gets around very quickly. And I feel sort of sometimes with Netflix, stuff can sort of drop and then it's sort of big for about three days. And then the next thing drops. And then that's really popular for four days. And then and it's sort of like it's very easy to get sort of uh, lost in the, in the whole, you know, because we are in peak TV at the moment, I think, aren't we, you know? So I've been quite lucky in that sort of some of these things have, have, have sort of, you know, fortunately touched wood, have sort of stuck and people really like them and, and, they, and they have a life, you know. Particularly with sex education, there's something about that show that people just really have, have, have taken to. Go on, Kerry. Oh, have we got something? We do have oh, something go on from then. sex yes, education. Definitely. Unfortunately, yes. it's only from YouTube, so it's got the lyrics underneath it. I mean, again, this this was something. So, so the story behind this is that originally it was going to be "I Touch Myself" by the Divinals, and we couldn't clear it. We then used that song actually in season two for people that have seen season two, the first three minutes of episode one we use a version of I Touch Myself to quite spectacular effect. Yes. Um, I played that on Radio 1. Did you? A few times, yeah, in the 90s. When I saw the first cut of that scene, I said, this is literally the best TV that's ever been made. <laughs> well, I was like, literally, it was, it was very rough, but you knew where it was going. Anyway, so it was going to be that. But, but because, it's, because it's sung live, we couldn't, we couldn't use it because it wasn't cleared. So we had to come up with something very quickly. As it happened, Billy Ocean was playing a gig down the road from where I live. And it was a summer's night and we had our windows open and I could hear him wafting through my window. You know, so th there's this whole thing where I've been really struggling with this song. And there I was sort of lying there, sort of begging for inspiration and then this song sort of wafted through the window and I was just like there it's kind of it's kind of <laughs> like it's sort of it's not really the same as like I touched myself but there might be something there and I sort of then sort of sent it off on the Monday morning and everybody was like can we clear it and it was like yes we can clear it we got it done they did the the arrangement the actor sang it brilliantly and it's a really difficult scene because I, I because with with a scene like this, you can either get it really right and it's quite emotional and it, it prickles you behind the eyes a little bit, which it does with me, or it will make you puke a little bit. And so hopefully it's like it's it's it sort of it makes you prickle behind the eyes and not There's vomit. There's the man who's going to tell us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> From, from season two, yeah. first three minutes. Who's seen that? Anybody? <laughs> He's seen it. 
The only note from Netflix, I'll tell you this now, and I'm really sorry to my parents who are sitting here, but the only note from Netflix when that scene came through was there's too much jizz. <laughs> and, that's, and that's what that show is. We sit there having these ridiculous conversations about all, about all sorts of stuff. But anyway, so... Apologies for the subtitles. See you later, this is an urgent announcement from your head boy. Will all six formers please head to the canteen now? Can anyone see Jackson's error? Uh, maybe it's a fire drill? That's more now. Sorry for the interruption, but hey, it's just for education, right? <laughs> so there's somebody in this crowd who's very special to me, and no, it's not you, Mr. Groff. <laughs> this person is pretty damn incredible. She's one of a kind. But I was an idiot because I wanted to hide how I felt. Well, I'm not going to keep your secret anymore. Maeve Wiley, this is for you. I think he's gonna sing. No, 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 no. You walk like a dream and you make like your queen of the action. You're using every trick in the book, the way that you look. You're really something to see. You cheated and lied to impress any guy that you fancy. Don't you know I'm out of my mind? So give me a sign and help to ease the pain inside me, baby. Baby, lovely hearts without you. I need swing bands. Why didn't they ask me to play? And girl, you're breaking my heart, but what can I do, baby? Baby, lovely hearts without you. Unexpected. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, I'm soppy. What can I say? Yeah. Who would have ever thought that your windows open and uh, Billy Ocean's music would drift in and it would finish up like that? It's incredible, isn't it? He how, loves it. How, I'm sure he does. <laughs> But, you know, one final point about that, because, um, you know, I, I love the Nashville TV series. Mm. And, uh, of course, music played a, a, a very important role in that as well. And one of the reasons that the I think one of the reasons for the success of the whole six series, I think it was, 
was the fact that initially T-Bone Burnett uh, got the actors to sing the songs themselves. He didn't get session people in and have them mime. Yeah. They were given the responsibility of coming up with a performance of that song, whatever you know that song was. And it, it was a challenge for the actors to do that. Yeah. And therefore, it brought something out in them that where they were giving something to that song. So then it made the performance and the song convincing. Yeah. And I'm certain that's one of the reasons that the series was the success it was. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And it's very difficult because, you know, on the day you can have nerves and he is singing live. Mm. So to a sort of pre-recorded backing track that they did in like literally the next room very, very quickly. Uh, and then it was sweetened up in post-production. But he is singing live. Yeah. And he just had a great day, you know. But like, I have done other stuff where uh, they have a really bad day. And uh, even if they're singing to a pre-record, I did something uh, for the Limehouse Golem, which was a film. And there was Douglas Booth had already done a pre-record and had to mime to his own pre-record. He was so nervous. He didn't get one single line right, even to his own miming. He was either slightly ahead or slightly behind. And of course, on a 70-foot screen, you can really yeah. tell when yeah. you can't get, you know, when you mess up the the, the lip sync. Mm. So he had to then retro, he had to come in again and then re-sing it to his own bad lip syncing as punishment, <laughs> basically. <laughs> I remember T-Bone telling me about Reese Witherspoon in the Johnny Cash uh, biopic. Um, she had a song to do. They'd gone into the studio and she tried it and she tried it and over and over again. And she got so stressed by doing this song and just not being able to get it right. And T-Bone said they went out into the parking lot and she did that sort of primal screaming thing where you mm -hmm. just went, ah, I just can't get this. And he said, I tell you what, let's, let's just go back in. I'm going to get rid of the band. Yeah. It's just me with an acoustic guitar and let's sit and you sing and I'll play and let's see what happens. And that was the version they used. He yeah. said it was so powerful to just capture that moment because, mm. you know, capturing that lightning in a bottle, everybody wants to do that, don't they? And yeah. when you can match that with a piece of film as well, that's a very, very powerful moment. Yeah, And particularly with people that have been doing it for years and have loads of experience to ask, Kedar, who's the guy that was singing there, to sort of do that on the day, you know, in this very artificial environment is like a, a bit of an ask, you know. So, I mean, I was sort of expecting it to come back and for us to have to do all sorts of jiggery-pokery to make it good. Yeah. It's like, oh, that, that kid, yeah. Yeah, absolutely yeah. nailed it, bless him. Yeah. I don't know about you, Bob, but I find as as I get older, I keep on going back to the stuff I was listening to when I was a teenager, you know, which was Tom Waits and Fleetwood Mac, you know, um, a, a, a lot of the time. I mean, you know, all all the all the you know the the records that I that I describe, but particularly Tom Waits and Fleetwood Mac and Leonard Cohen, you know, and I and I I, I do keep on going back to those to those records. And I don't really understand why, you know. Uh, but I you think know, we're a, on to it, hold. It, it is an amazing thing, isn't it, Matt? Though that, and, and I'm sure probably everybody in this room now would, if you, you know, I, I can hear something come on the radio. Let's say, 
that was a hit when I was 13 or 14 years old mm. that maybe I, I hadn't heard literally for about 45 years. I can remember every single one of the lyrics. Is, it, is this a... You can, can't you? Yeah. I think that very... I mean, we've, we've touched on this as a t topic for discussion before, but it's one of the reasons why, uh, let's say, for example, I was talking to Bernie Marsden about this a little while ago because he wrote some of the big... White Snake White was Snake. my first ever concert. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, at the Hammersmith Odeon with my dad. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and my mum wouldn't let me have a leather jacket or a denim jacket with patches on it. And I had to go to this bloody concert wearing a pair of wellies because I wasn't allowed cowboy boots either. And White Snake got on stage and David Coverdale swore his head off yes. for the whole show. My poor old dad standing there among all these hell's angels with David Coverdale going, are you ready to fucking rock? And yeah, all this kind of yeah. stuff. So anyway, Bernie Marsden. Well, well but White Snake, yeah. uh, you know, Bernie's had so many inquiries and uh, so many of those songs have been used on American... Uh, campaigns of various different mm. kinds, yeah. you know, over the last couple of years, because you know the theory being obviously that if you were into White Snake as a teenager, uh, you are now what forty five, fifty years old. Uh, quick maths, uh, but but you you are the person with that disposable income, and and we can touch you by replaying those songs from your teens. Yeah. And Bernie says it's been, it's been a fabulous moment for him. Is this love and here we go again and all those songs, you know, and coming back into circulation again in, in America. Uh, and, of course, he loves it because he's, you know, it's, it's regenerating, he's earning some money again. Yeah. But the theory behind that is, exactly as we were saying, that those records that you loved in your teens, when you hear them come around again, they just, I don't know, it's something they touch you, don't they, in a particular way but then it's nice to be able to then introduce those songs to then new teenagers or new mm. sort of kids yeah. and all that kind of stuff so so yeah well again we should conclude i guess i'm just trying to think how we do sum up the thing that that i've got from talking to you matt is, is confirmed something that i really strongly believe and that and that's that there, there is a certain sort of element of chance about the creative process yes. that you have to allow to breathe. Yeah. I mean, who would ever expect you to be lying there and Billy Ocean drift into your bedroom? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a, but unless you're open to that, um, that's not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I remember great. I met Mike Oldfield some years ago, and uh, well, I met him in Tubular Bells time, but this was in the early nineties, and he put Tubular Bells Seven out or something. Mm. I can't remember exactly where. Um, but I, I, we we were in his uh, studio at the bottom of his garden, yeah, and we were about to do the interview, and he had a skylight open in the in the ceiling, yeah, and um, it was a filthy, horrible day, and it was just about to pour with rain. And I, I, I said to him, Mike, do you think you should pull the skylight here? I was worried about the, the equipment getting wet. And he mm -hmm. said, I couldn't possibly do that, he said, because that's where the ideas come in. <laughs> and I yeah, thought, but he was a bit mental, wasn't he? Was he, a bit, he was a bit bonkers, but yeah. I did get it completely. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I've sort of uh, had that as a, a, a kind of guiding phrase ever since. You never want to close that skylight. Because yeah. that's where the ideas come in. Yeah, yeah. I, we used to have that a bit with Graham Coxon on the end of the, on the fucking world. Like we, we'd sort of be having a meeting, and he'd sort of disappear for ten minutes, 
And we thought, oh, he's gone to the loo or something like that. But actually, he would have just got an idea and he would have sung it into his little phone. You know, because you sort of sit there and you never know with Graham whether he's paying any attention at all, you know, and he sort mm. of like, he'd sort of, he texts you sort of going, what day is it and do we have a meeting? And uh, and so, you know, we'd be having these meetings and you sometimes it's just like, like, I'm not even sure if you're like, you're sort of like hearing anything. And then you just get up without saying anything and then come back in. And then literally that afternoon, a song would would, would arrive in my inbox and it would take him... So he wrote Walking All Day, which is his most streamed song of his solo catalogue. Wow. He wrote that in the time it took him to play it, basically, yes. uh, without really thinking about it at all. And without, and you can kind of hear that it's sort of like, you know, that chord goes there, that lyric is dead simple and everything like that. But there's something about it. And again, talk about not sort of getting it quite right. I, I mean, I, I thought it was a really great song, but I wouldn't say, okay, this is going to be your most streamed song on, on Spotify. You know, I thought it was really great and it worked picture and everything like that, but I wouldn't have picked that one out as being the song, mm -hmm. you know. But, um, you know, he's a great one for that, of just sort of like allowing himself to be inspired from wherever and just working very quickly and not thinking about it. Yeah, too don't much. overthink it's, it too don't much. Don't overthink really it. Really important. It's like yeah. literally sort of like, you know, the drums on that thing is him hitting hitting a tambourine with his foot and a bit of cardboard. Yes. And then he sort of put the slide guitar on it and then he moved on to the next thing. And, and you know, he never, you know, none of us were thinking about anything at that time other than sort of getting on to the next thing, you know. Mm. So, yeah, you know. So keep that skylight open is the go on Ruth one is there a song that you didn't matter how much it fitted you wouldn't put it forward for you because it's so important to you yeah there, 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 there's a there's a couple actually that I probably wouldn't go anywhere near unless it was the proper scene you're like this sweet surrender by Tim Buckley right okay yeah so which is about seven minutes long but uh, it's absolutely one of the best songs that, is, that there's ever been, but there's no point in using that unless you have it exactly right with some, with exactly the right scene, and that hasn't come up yet. So we 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 sort of continue trying to sort of go and there. The, the other is, would you share the story of how easy it was for me to invite you to speak to Bob? <laughs> uh, yeah, because when I was a kid, my dad recorded the old grey whistle test. And when I say I was a kid, so I actually I've said I was six or seven. Actually, I was nine or ten because this sort of went, I think it was 1979. But dad had recorded this on, on VHS. And for some reason, every, every time I went, sort of went around there, I just ended up watching this three-hour whistle test special. So that had like Raikuda, Vigilante Man, Little Feet doing Rock and Roll Doctor. Uh, there was the animated thing of Pink Floyd doing what, uh, one oh of these goodness, days. Yeah. The Cheech and Chong animation. Yes. Springsteen doing Rosalita. Yes. So it was all that. And so as a kid, that sort of just sunk in. That and also something else that was Jeff Bridges' thing 
called Heroes of Rock and Roll that I also used to watch that also went up to 1979. And so that that's what I was kind of... I, was, I, I heard stuff on the radio, and obviously, you know, everybody played bloody Rumours by Fleetwood Mac 83 times a day. And Dad used to play Baker Street by Jerry Rafferty at blaring volume at seven in the morning on a Saturday. But what I was, but so what I was really lis listening to and hearing and getting into was the stuff from, from Whistle Test. And then as a result of that, I then got into Captain Beefheart, uh, really into sort of Tim Buckley and all, and all that kind of stuff. So it is a bit, and that's the reason why I'm sorry, why I've got my, my dad here is this sort of circle of me watching that as a 10-year-old, and now I'm sitting with Bob Bloody Harris. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> Thank you. Well, this has been brilliant. Don't forget uh, Nordoff Robbins. Uh, chuck a penny or two in the uh, on the plate. Uh, that's very important for us. That's so much of what tonight is about for us also. But this has been a fantastic pleasure. I've really loved this. Matt, a round of applause, please. Thank you. That's it for another episode. If you want to find out more about the event series, go to www.aneveningwithbob.com, where you'll also find videos of the event highlights and interviews with Bob, Ruth, Matt, and all the other guests. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast, or you just want to get in touch, send us an email to podcast at soundlounge.co.uk. Don't forget to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. See you next time. Sound Lounge.